This morning as we continue to look at one of the most challenging chapters in Scripture, in Matthew 24, Jesus, he talks about the end of the world. And the reason that it's challenging in trying to look for every detail in the text, we learned early on that the best things of writing, the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, well, we know who and we know what it is, but the where and, the, and we know why it is, <laughs> but the where and the when and what time and how exactly does the end of the world look? You know, we, in trying to look for those details, we risk missing truths that address our future. And the questions which we really should be asking, are we ready for Jesus? Are we ready for eternity? And there's things to remember throughout Matthew 24. There's a lot of difficult language. It's, it's confused, lots of difficult language, confusing imagery. But you've got to keep in mind this. We have to remember this. Language and image which Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, church-loving teachers and scholars have discussed and not agreed upon for centuries. Lots of mystery. And at the outset of that, let me remind us this. The Lord wants to grow our faith. And so he doesn't tell us everything that's going to happen on the journey, does he? No, he doesn't. Matthew 24, as we saw this, this last time, there's two overarching events in Matthew 24. The, the coming fall of Jerusalem, which will come some 40 years after the conversation which Jesus is having in Matthew 24 with his disciples, that's one event, and the other event is the coming of the Son of Man. So I'm going to remind you this morning, there are rough days ahead. Rough days ahead, but not impossible. Two horizons, the immediate horizon, the immediate context, is the coming fall of Jerusalem, but we also need to think about our context today, our horizon. We've got to be concerned with what's on our horizon. So last week we, we closed with what some say is one of the most grace and hope-filled verses in the New Testament, really in all of Scripture. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, tells us the following. Verse 14 of Matthew 24 reads, This gospel of the kingdom... The words of Jesus, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Then the end will come. And see, this passage should fill us with hope. It fills me with hope. And look at 15, where we start today. Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Daniel the prophet. Who was Daniel the prophet? Well, he was an Old Testament prophet, and, and he's the same Daniel. You remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den. He's the same Daniel. And he had lots of what are called apocalyptic visions, uh, which are found in the very last part of the book of Daniel. And when we hear the word apocalyptic, we tend to think of end things. The word apocalypsis, in Scripture, in the original language, the word apocalypsis means a revealing, an unveiling. And so we see through what Jesus will share, he, he begins to, to reveal some things, to unveil some things. 
Jesus is referring to a few scriptures in the book of Daniel with what most agree is the desecration of a holy altar or, and its sacrifice. And these scriptures in Daniel, these, re, these reveal things such as temple worship, what the Israelites were a part of, and their regular sacrifices. But these things, they're, they're going to be done away with. And there's going to be an establishment of, of a horrible presence called an abomination of desolation. And this abomination, we find out, is first realized in the reign of a pagan king a couple of centuries before Jesus. So to about 200 years before Jesus tells this to the disciples, there's a reign of a pagan king, and his name is Antiochus, and he's, he's a Greek king. And this, I got this from the New World Encyclopedia, and this, you need to understand what's on the mind of these disciples as Jesus is telling this story. This pagan king Antiochus saw himself as the Greek god Zeus. And Antiochus saw himself as having power over all the religions in his realm. And so people, the Israelites who were caught reading God's law, the Torah, they were punished, some were killed, Sabbath observation was abolished, and one of one of what we find in the Old Testament circumcision, the rite of circumcision, that is banned. And the historian Josephus, an ancient historian who, who shared a lot, about, a lot about the trials of the people of God, this is what Josephus says. He says that Antiochus compelled the Jews to dissolve all the laws of their country, to keep their infants uncircumcised, and to sacrifice swine's flesh on the altar. We know that's a no-no. We see in, in, the, in those first five books of the Old Testament that swine is unclean. And he wanted that sacrificed on the altar. And the Israelites, they're opposed to this. So, nearly 170 years before the birth of Jesus, Antiochus marches into Jerusalem and he dedicates the temple of God to Zeus. You see the problem here. He erects an image of Zeus. Well, it's in his own likeness as he thought himself Zeus, erects a statue of himself on the altar, and according to some sources, he sacrifices a pig in the temple. And this is known to the Jews as the great desecration or an abomination of desecration. So this is what's on the mind of these disciples, okay? They, they know their history. They remember the stories that their grandparents and their parents told them. But wait, there's more. There's a book written of Jewish history a de, what they call a deuterocanonical book called Second Maccabees. And it reads this. It says that Antiochus commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly everyone they met to kill those who went into their houses. There's a massacre of young and old, destruction of boys and women and children, and slaughter of young girls and infants. And within the total of three days, 80,000 were destroyed, 40,000 in hand-to-hand fighting, and as many were sold into slavery as were killed. And this happens 170 years before the time of the birth and ministry of Jesus. This is part of Jewish history. And these disciples remember these stories. And we've got to keep this in mind. These ones who first hear these words of Scripture, the disciples in the early church, they remember the stories about this wicked king Antiochus. They remember these awful tales told to them by parents and grandparents. How many of you all 
remember stories told to you by fathers, grandfathers, uncles about wars overseas. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. And this, this abomination which happened a couple hundred years prior to this time, Jesus is telling the disciples that that is a foretaste of what's going to happen in the fall of Jerusalem, which is going to happen 40 years from that conversation. So what happened in the past is just a taste of the horrible tragedy that's coming. And Jesus says there in verse 16 that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must, must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. And one writer compared this fleeing from Jerusalem to fleeing from Sodom when God brought judgment back in Genesis chapter 19. And when all this occurs, there's not going to be any time to run back in the house and grab grandma's silver. There's not going to be any time for that. And as difficult as it is, it's going to be more difficult for those young mothers and those young mothers-to-be. Dads remember trying to pack all of sweet babies, port a crib and port a potty and pack and play and for an overnight stay, one night stay at the mother-in-law's. <laughs> That's not really exactly this picture. This, this is a whole lot worse. Try, I mean, try to imagine providing for an infant in these times and then trying to escape all of this in, in the winter rains and mudslides in that region of the world in that season. And not to mention trying to appropriate resources in days of difficulty. Think about the difficulty we've had in six months' time trying to find Clorox wipes. And in our context, we are able to see how God's Word is truth, and we're able to see that Jerusalem will fall, <laughs> will fall 40 years after Jesus shares these words, and great its fall will be. I mentioned Josephus just a minute ago. Well, that historian says something about the fall of Jerusalem. He says this, Anyone left in Jerusalem becomes a prisoner. The aged, the aged and the infirm are euthanized. They're killed. And, and some of the Israelites, are, they're sold. Some are sent to work. And as the siege of Jerusalem occurs during the time of Passover, when everybody goes back to back to the main city, over one million are murdered. Two events, the coming fall in Jerusalem, but we got to remember the second one, the coming of the Son of Man. Look there at verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. <laughs> Let me read that again. That's heavy. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Thank God for His mercy. And then in 23, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. 
We saw this last time. There's going to be a time of great tribulation, time of great persecution, great distress, and there's going to be a lot of imposters, false prophets, who will attempt to mislead the children of God. There's going to be imposters, false prophets. Some are going to impress with street magic, parlor tricks. We see this in Acts chapter 8, if you remember the story of Simon the magician, when he wants, he wants the power of God and he tries unsuccessfully to buy the power of God from Peter and John. And these false prophets will attempt to mislead the children of God. And we talked last time about how some, how some will be misled. Biblical illiteracy. Not knowing Scripture. You know we have false prophets now. In the very recent past, we can think of names like Jim Jones, David Koresh. And we've probably all heard of those strange cultish groups who claim to follow a strain of Bible before they jump off onto some later non-biblical book that they can bring you right to your doorstep. Yes, you know, I guess it's possible to mislead folks who've sat in a pew for a while, but maybe have not opened a Bible in a while. Like I said last time, if we know the voice of the Good Shepherd, we won't be led astray. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And if we read this and learn to listen the voice of the Lord, we won't be misled. Jesus says in verse 26, So if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Behold, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The arrival of the Son of Man will be obvious. This is certain. There's instances in stories and, and movies and TV miniseries and they reference to the coming of a Messiah, uh, one who has arrived from a, a foreign locale, a foreign land. Uh, maybe, a, maybe a virgin in the 21st century will conceive in these, in these days. But we as a people who love and know Scripture know differently. We know that the arrival of the Son of Man will be obvious. But we also know that there are a lot of folks who will be misled regarding the coming of a Messiah. Again, if we know the voice of the Good Shepherd, we will not be led astray. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Whatever in the world does that scripture mean? John Piper says it like this, When the world is as ready for judgment as roadkill is for vultures, then he will come in great wrath. And we read in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 29, But immediately after this tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. 
And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. The return of the Son of Man. And as we just saw, the arrival of the Son of Man will be obvious. And Jesus, he speaks these words which are a prophecy, part of a prophecy from the book of Joel. Joel chapter 3 verse 15, Jesus quotes those words of Joel. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall. The very power of the heavens will be shaking. Darkness will cover the earth. That sounds a lot like in the beginning, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 1, darkness covers all. The sign of the Son of Man. There's been lots of discussion, lots of conjecture as to what this is. Some have said it will be a giant cross, a symbol of both sacrifice and victory. Some have said it's a giant star, not unlike what appeared on the night of Jesus' first advent, the night of his birth. Let me share what Daniel the prophet says. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, we read that in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel the prophet saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed, and then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. And he sees some strange and incredible things, terrible visions, terrible images, which Bible teachers have tried to explain for years and years and years. In verse 13, Daniel the prophet sees something else. I kept looking... In the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Doesn't that do your heart good to hear that he's the Lord of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and race? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Again, I believe there will be no question. <laughs> the Son of Man will be seen as he comes on the clouds in the sky with power and great glory. And it will be glorious and it will be awesome and it will be obvious. It will be obvious. And as I asked you last time, are you ready? There are rough days ahead, but not impossible. Verse 30, the tribes of the earth who want nothing to do with the Savior in these days will mourn at last, and it will be too late for them. It says all the tribes will mourn. And I wonder if, if we, if, if those of us who have trusted in Jesus, I wonder if we will mourn about those unsaved loved ones who will no longer have an opportunity for salvation? Will we mourn for all those missed opportunities where we could have shared the gospel of salvation? Will we mourn those opportunities where we were not comfortable? Maybe we were afraid of offending someone we cared about. Will we mourn those missed opportunities for redemptive conversations. Are we ready? Well, Jake, this is another gloom and doom sermon. It's something we have to remember. What did we sing prior to the sermon? 
Oh, worship the King. Those two lines that I ask you to remember. His mercies, how tender, how firm to the end. Our maker, our defender, redeemer, and friend. Amen. You know we can be ready for any rough day now or down the road. And this is, this is, this is how we can be ready. We're all sinners. Jesus, taking our sins to the cross, gave us his righteousness. The righteousness required for us to stand before a holy God. And we need the righteousness of the Lord because we're all sinners. The, 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 the price, the wage of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, by dying on the cross, paid the price of the wages of our sin. Jesus has done it. He's made that transaction. And as I've said before, we can't undo it. (laughs) Regardless of how we might feel, Jesus is the one who does the saving. That great verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that reads, God showed us His great love by sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. Thanks be to God. And if you and I can, can come to the place that we understand that as sinners we deserve death and that we need a Savior, and we can step past our pride to trust in Jesus being the only one who can die for us and be restored to life, if we confess our sin and our need for Him, if we trust in that and we have the belief, we have the faith that Jesus can pull all of this off, we can have a relationship of peace with God. Doesn't that fill you with hope? It does me. Because He's the one that does the saving work. Are you ready?